think that contact ain't gonna last a while. You got another thing coming. Well, as the chont cooked in my oven, the whole house filled with the smell of the old country. We love stories! It's time for the Appleseed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, stories to warm your heart and lift your spirit and give flight to your imagination. We're going to do some of all of that today. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me every time you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. We've got some great stuff for you today. You're going to hear a story with the super interesting title, Loving Someone You Never Met. The wonderful storyteller Betty Ann Wiley will bring it to you. And you're going to hear from the terrific Massachusetts storyteller Jay O'Callaghan with a story called Electra. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined by Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, it's great to have you with me. So good to be here. You know, we're going to hear a story from Diane Ferlat today. Tell us a little bit about it. This story is called Thank You, Ma'am, and it is just the sweetest story about this boy who meets an old woman, and she kind of takes care of him a little bit and teaches him how to do certain things, even though he has every reason and every way to run away and be free and be on his own. She doesn't try and keep him held bound to her at all, but uh, the lessons that he learns from her keep him close to her throughout it. And (laughs) I think it's just the sweetest story. You know, buried down in this story is kind of a little treat if you listen for it. This story comes from a tradition of stories that arose as ways to teach certain phrases to kids. Uh, When you wanted your kid to learn, for example, how to say thank you, there would be a story with a lot of repetitions of the phrase thank you right yeah that's and, so interesting uh, yeah or, for, or or if you want in an era when you wanted your kid to be quick to say yes ma'am right there would be a, <laughs> fra- a story with a lot of repetitions of the phrase mm-hmm. yes ma'am you know and sometimes those were audience participation stories you know the the parent would tell a story and the child would repeat certain parts of the story and and this story comes from that uh, tradition it's really great Diane Ferlat is a wonderful storyteller and she works often with uh, a guitarist named Eric Pearson. I say guitarist, but he plays guitar and banjo and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so sometimes with a Diane Ferlat storytelling experience, you're also getting a Diane Ferlat and Eric Pearson storytelling experience. We're excited to bring this story to you here. Uh, Thank you, ma'am, from Diane Ferlat. This story could have taken place in any community, in any big city. I want to tell you about a woman. She was a very large woman, and she had a big pocketbook. I mean, it was so big, she put everything in it but the kitchen sink. And it had a long old strap on it, and she would carry it over her shoulder. Well, it must have been about 11 o'clock at night and she had just gotten off work and she was heading home, walking, alone. Big mistake. 
when here comes a young boy right behind her who tries to oh, snatch her pocketbook. But from the weight of that purse and the weight of the boy, the boy slipped, lost his balance, and fell on the sidewalk, on his back with his legs up in the air. Well, that woman, she turned around and picked him up by his shirt front, and she shook him. I mean, she shook him until his teeth rattled. And she said, now you pick up my pocketbook. And she bent down just enough for him to pick it up. Then she said, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Yes, ma'am. But why you won't do a thing like that? I didn't mean to, ma'am. You a lie. Now, by this time, folks walking by begin to slow up and look. Well, some folks just stopped and were watching. Ooh. I'm sorry, lady. I I'm sorry. If I let you go, you gonna run? Yes, ma'am. Well, I ain't gonna let you go. She said, mm, mm, mm. Your face sure is dirty. Ain't nobody at home to tell you when to wash your face. No, ma'am. Well, it's gonna get washed this evening. And that woman started walking down the street, dragging the boy behind her. He looked about 14, 15 years old, you know, tennis shoes, blue jeans. She said, Lord, 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 you should be my son. I bet you I teach you right from wrong. But least I can do now is get that face washed. Are you hungry, son? No, ma'am. I just want you to turn me loose. Was I bothering you when I turned the corner? No, ma'am. But you made contact with me. And if you think that contact ain't gonna last a while, you got another thing coming. Because before I'm through with you, young man, you're gonna remember Miss Eula Bates Washington Jones. And she continued on down the street going home. But the boy, he tried to get loose and Miss Eula just stopped. And she put a half Nelson around his neck. Then she headed on down the street. When she got to a house, she walked up these stairs through a door and down a long old hallway to a room in the back of the house. Took out her key, opened the door, kicked on the light, and still holding on to that boy, she said, what's your name, son? Roger. Well, now, Roger, you go over to that sink and wash your face. And she finally let him loose. At last. But Roger looked at the open door. He looked at the sink. And he looked at the open door. Looked at the sink. Looked at the open door. And he went to the sink. 
She said, let that water run till it get warm. And here, a clean towel. Mm, mm, mm. Here I was trying to get home to get me a bite to eat. When you gonna snatch my pocketbook. I believe you're hungry. I've been hungry to be snatching on my pocketbook. I, I, I just wanted some new shoes. Well, you didn't have to snatch my pocketbook to get no new shoes, son. All you had to do was ask me. Ma'am? The boy just stood there, water dripping from his face. And after he dried his face, he didn't know what else to do. So he dried it again. Then he noticed the front door was still open. He could make a run for it. But then the woman sitting on the daybed, she said, I was young once. I wanted things I couldn't get. The boy's mouth fell open and he frowned. She said, oh, you thought I was going to say but, didn't you? You thought I was going to say, but I didn't snatch nobody's pocketbook. But that's not what I was going to say. You see, son, we all got something in common. I've done some terrible things in my day, son. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell God. Except he already knew. Yes, son. We all got things in common. Now you sit down there, I'm gonna fix us something to eat, because I believe you're hungry. And run that comb through your head while you're at it. Make yourself presentable. She got up, went to the corner of the room, and went behind a little screen where she had a little ice box and a little gas plate. But she didn't even watch the boy to see if he would run away and didn't watch her purse, which she left on the daybed. But you can believe this. That boy made sure he was way on the other side of the room, away from her purse. Because he didn't trust that woman not to trust him. And he didn't want to be mistrusted now. He said, ma'am, you need somebody to go to the store or something, to get some milk or something? No, I don't believe I do. I'm just gonna make some cocoa out of this canned milk I have here. And then Miss Julia warmed up some lima beans and some ham and some made some cocoa and she put it on the table. And then they sat down to eat and she didn't ask him anything about where he lived or about his folks or anything that would embarrass him. She just talked about herself and how she worked downtown at the hotel beauty shop and all the ladies coming to get their hair done. And when they finished eating, she said, eat some more, son, eat some more. Then she got up and got her little cake and she cut him half of her 10 cents cake. Come on, son, eat some more, eat some more. And when they were done, Miss Eula, she went down in her bosom 
And she said, here, you take this money and you go buy them shoes. And remember, son, whatever you do, don't make the big mistake of snatching on my pocketbook or anyone else's, you hear? Because shoes got by devilish ways burn your feet. Now, come on, I got to get my rest now. And she led him down that long old hallway to the front door. And she watched him walk down the stairs. And she said, behave yourself, son. Behave yourself. Now that boy wanted to say more than thank you to Miss Eula Bates Washington Jones. But even though his lips were moving, he couldn't even say that. And when he turned around to look at her standing in the doorway, she had closed the door. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. You know, when I was growing up, it seemed like I had 20 to 30 mamas and daddies. I couldn't get away with anything. Hey, young lady, aren't you going the wrong way? You better get on to school now. You're going to be late. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for picking up that paper on the sidewalk, honey. Yes, ma'am. There was always somebody watching over me. We need more people like Mrs. Eula Bates Washington Jones. And you kids out there, look around. Who's watching over you? I bet you got a lot of them. Well, don't forget to thank him, you hear? Yes, ma'am. wonderful storyteller Diane Ferlat and accompanying her there on the guitar, her frequent collaborator, Eric Pearson. Such a pleasure to bring that sweet tale about, well, it's about the community of grown-ups that helps raise a child, right? Yeah, exactly. I, that's the one thing I really liked is at the very end how she said she felt like she had 20 to 30 mamas and dads growing yeah. up and I think I kind of feel the same way. Like I had two parents, you know, in my house growing up, but yeah. at the same time, it doesn't even include all my neighbors and extended family members that helped me grow. And yeah. there really are so many people that affect our lives in so many ways. And and a story like that can bring them to mind, can't it? You listen to a story like that, and suddenly I'm thinking of teachers and 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 the parents of friends, and you know, all, all kinds of folks who played that that important role in my in my early life, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to hear a story from uh, Diane Ferlat. And Lacey, thanks for bringing us this one today. Yeah, of course. I'm glad I could be here. There's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. If you're just joining us, 
We just came out of a great story called Thank You, Ma'am by the wonderful storyteller Diane Ferlat, her musical accompanist Eric Pearson in there, too. Lots coming up. We're going to hear a story from Laura Pershing Rayner called Cholt, and from Jay O'Callaghan, we'll hear Electra. Jay O'Callaghan, the great Massachusetts storyteller. First, because we know that uh, the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room. I'll share a story about my grandfather, a story about saving money. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. When I was about eight, I started getting an allowance. It was 50 cents per week, and my dad paid it to me in nickels. There were some things he wanted me to learn about money, and one of them was that I should learn to save 10% of everything I made. And since my allowance was 50 cents, being paid in nickels made it easy for me to set aside a nickel, one-tenth of my allowance. It was tough to do. I didn't have big money appetites back then, but I was almost always in the market for a new Star Wars action figure. They cost $3.18 a piece in the toy department of the big department store a half hour's drive from our house. That's seven and a half weeks of allowance saving if you're doing the math, and it assumes that I was setting aside that nickel a week for... Not action figures, but for, I don't know, college or something. If I didn't save that nickel a week and lumped it all together to buy action figures, I could cut a week off the waiting time. So it was, as you can imagine, a temptation. Sometimes when I was too sorely tempted not to save that nickel for the future, so sorely tempted that it showed, and if my grandpa was visiting when I was so sorely tempted that it showed, I'd get what my grandpa called his smoking story. As a young man, my grandpa got a job, and as he looked around him in the workplace, he saw a lot of people smoking cigarettes, and one day, though my grandpa didn't smoke cigarettes, he decided, he says, that he had as much right to smoke cigarettes as anyone else, and he decided to become a one-pack-a-day smoker. Now, to be clear... He didn't start smoking. He just committed himself to set aside every day money equal to the price of a pack of cigarettes. He did it every day. He put it in a little jar on the edge of his desk at work. And when the jar got full, he'd dump it into his pocket and put it in the bank. And then he'd fill up the jar again every day a little bit with what he called his smoking money. That's how he'd talk about it, too, with people who asked. People would say, what's that jar full of change on the edge of your desk? And he'd say, oh, that. That's my smoking money. And they'd say, but you don't smoke, Lee. And then my grandpa, who loved this kind of thing, would have a moment to evangelize about his particular brand of fiscal responsibility. Well, after a while, it wasn't just money equal to the price of a pack of cigarettes that was going into the jar. If he bought a sandwich at lunch and got change, the change would go in the jar. If his pants went through the laundry and he found a quarter in the pocket into the jar, the quarter would go. If he saw a nickel on the sidewalk into the jar, the nickel would go. Money from under the couch cushions, in the jar too. Smoking money. 
The story in the family was that he saved smoking money for a year, at least a pack of cigarettes worth each day, and whatever other change he had from whatever the day's activities might bring. And at the end of the year, he went to the bank, withdrew his smoking money, and bought a car. Now, that's the family story. And I remember it. In fact, I check the math sometimes to see how it holds up. And the last time I checked the math was just now as I was thinking about this. A pack of cigarettes, as it turns out right now in my state, costs about seven bucks. Put that amount airway every day of the year, and that's 2,500 bucks in a year. That's about what we paid for the used car that got our daughter through college. It's about what my son paid for the motorcycle he drove for a while. In the state where cigarettes cost the most, 11 bucks, you'd make more than four grand if you saved a pack a day's worth of change for a year. Add that to my drive-up window burger change and the money I find in the laundry, and, well, it adds up. My grandpa's point was a little tough to swallow for an eight-year-old, jonesing for a Boba Fett action figure, but it was a simple formula that involved, more than anything, the ability to comfortably let time pass as you engaged in the simple discipline of doing a little something each day. The power, so scarce, really, in the skill set of most eight-year-olds, to wait. I'm no good at it, and all my life I've been in the middle of things I just couldn't wait to get out of, or seen things far off that I just couldn't wait to arrive. But they do, don't they? I graduated from high school. I never thought that would come. I got a driver's license. I got a job. I weathered illnesses and financial difficulties and relationship challenges. And what a lot of it has taken simply is the passage of time. And I learned something from my grandpa that I think I've been working on my whole life since then. Make friends with time. And you've got a friend for life. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear a story by Laura Pershing Rayner about Cholnt. Now, some of you are going to know what Cholnt is, and for some of you, this is going to be an introduction. In the meantime, here's a conversation with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, the things we see on screen, and through our experience with terrific music. And exploring all the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined in the studio today by Don Shaline, longtime friend of The Appleseed. In fact, Indeed. he's been a friend of The Appleseed before The Appleseed was even on the air. <laughs> That's how far when it was Don's just one seed. That's, that's yeah. right. Don was one of the people who brought the apple seed to uh, brought the idea to fruition in the first it's, place. It's been wonderful to be a part of it. I, yeah. I, it's become much greater and more wonderful than I ever even dreamed it would be. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a tree, cool. man. It's yeah, a, tree. a tree. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Don, it's great to have you. And and you know, listen now, Don. Don is like 
a rockin' dude. You just got to know this about Don Shaline. <laughs> I had the rockin' pneumonia and the boogie and woogie the, flu. And the boogie woogie flu. And I'll, but I'll tell you, when he comes onto the apple seeds just behind this mic, sometimes all he can do is talk about sappy love songs. It's so sad. <laughs> and yeah. you, you've brought one today. Well, this is yes. something. Oh, okay. And I, I really do love to rock uh, in all the different ways that you rock and roll, but... To me, the entire genre of, I guess you'd call it popular music, but it's rooted in rock and roll, has lots of very pretty soft songs as yeah. well. So I call it all, you know, it's, it's all in that category. And I'm yeah. not one to turn my nose up at a slow, pretty soft song either. That's right. Don yes. Shaline dedicated to the notion that all music <laughs> are music. created equal. No judgment here. Um, <laughs> when I was a young father, in fact, uh, about the time that... Uh, we had our first little baby girl. Mm. Um, the Commodores were very popular at the time. Oh, yes. And, you know, they just come out with, what was it, I'm Easy, and they'd done Brick House and things like that. <laughs> and uh, I was down in Farmington, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Uh, and just we were trying to start a new business down there, and we were just, you know, these, I had a couple of friends down there as well, and all of our young families were trying to get started. And, um, and, we, uh, my wife and I had this, uh, and went through the pregnancy and everything, and, yeah. and, and actually the baby was delivered up in Durango, Colorado. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we had a doctor up in that, in that beautiful area. It is a beautiful area. And, uh, and so there was a bit of a drive back and forth between Farmington and Durango as, you know, the hospital stay and, and everything that was involved in that. But we had a beautiful little baby girl, and... Just, it was probably one of the first times I heard it coming onto the radio, hmm. my little, was it an AM radio in those days? <laughs> I think it was FM. Might have been AM. Uh, was this new song by Lionel Richie and the Commodores hmm. called Three Times a Lady. Oh, and, I can hear it now. Right? And, and it just, it was kind of a combination of a song, a tribute to your sweetheart yeah. to your wife, but also to this brand new little girl. Yeah. You know, that there there are many ladies in your life uh, that <laughs> uh, are just sweet and that how can you tell them how much you love them, but yeah. that you just play a beautiful song for them. And that, that just really touched me at that time that uh, here's this uh, tribute to this brand new little baby girl. And that's how I looked at it. You know, it is so interesting how a song really meant for one context yeah. that everybody understands, you know, a love song. Yeah. You know? Suddenly something in your life changes and provides a new context for that song. It, it sure and does. it opens up a whole new meaning yeah. for the song. Exactly. You know? I Often in rock and roll and, and folk music and things, um, you know, you could say, well, you can take that two different ways. Or, you know, maybe they're trying to write some hidden meaning in there. I don't know. I don't know how often hidden meanings are really tried to be put in any songs, but but you can interpret it the way you. It's personal to you. you yeah, know? yeah. Music really is that way, and yeah. and and the songs that you love really become. I mean, how many times have you gone to somebody and said, you know, one song that really means a lot to me is 
such and such a song. Yeah. And they say, that song? Are you that, kidding me? What? That, you know. It's a stupid song. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happens quite often. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because, because it, uh, uh, yeah, that that's the point, right? Yeah. It, it happens all the time because yeah. a response to a song can be so very, very subjective. You very know? much. And, and a song that you, a, a song that you heard yeah. during a, a poignant moment in your life becomes a poignant song. You know? Right. Even if it's... And, you know, you you have that initial reaction that often, especially if it becomes a popular song, it gets watered down. And that's, to me, a little sad is that a song can be played so much that after a while you go, okay, I'm kind of tired of that song. (laughs) Uh, And so I try real hard to to keep a bit of that fresh uh, mindset about some of these songs and try to remember, okay, this is why I originally liked it. Yeah. I'm gonna hold on to that. Yeah, 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 and and it may be the kind of song that you don't listen to all the time. You sure, know? you don't you yeah. don't put it on repeat and listen yeah. to back to back to back to back to back. You know, yeah. because of that thing that you talk about, it'll wear it'll wear itself out. You yeah, know? but when you come back to it every once in a while, those feelings come back and they're fresh. Yeah. Or and or you know, like a great story, there's even more for you in the song when you come back to it later on. You know, yeah. that that happens too. Yeah. Even with the Commodores. Even with the Commodores. <laughs> Three times a lady. And, you know, in those days, too, there was the short version and the long version. Oh, yes, yes. You always you were hoping you'd get the long version. Right, right. <laughs> and some kind DJ would sometimes yeah. give it oh, to yeah. you, right? <laughs> well, what a pleasure to talk about. Well, I like I say, we invite Don Shaline on, and suddenly it's about sappy love songs somehow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real pleasure to have Don on the show, a real pleasure to call him part of our BYU Radio family. Family, and, of course, a, a, a longtime friend of the Appleseed. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with a member of our broadcasting family here, Don Shaline, who's been on the radio for years and years and has a deep well of knowledge about music and a lot of memories to go with it. You may have memories of songs that you might want to share with the people in your life. We're going to bring you a story from Laura Persian Rayner called Cholnt in just a minute. Now, you may know what Cholnt is and you may not. If you do, well, then you know. If you don't, this will be an introduction for you. Laura Persian Rayner coming up here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. If you're just joining us, we're coming off of a conversation with Don Shaline about Three Times a Lady, that great old song, and memories that it brings up for Don. We invite you to go back through your catalog of music memories and share them as stories with the people in your life. Food memories are pretty good, too. And here's one from Laura Persian Rayner. Maybe you know and maybe you don't know what chont is, but we're happy to introduce you to it through this terrific story from a terrific storyteller on the Appleseed. The only thing my family likes to do more than tell stories is to eat. And some of our best stories are about food. One of the most legendary dishes that popped up in our stories was called chont. And this year, I decided to cook chont for the first time 
You could say it was tradition that made me do it. I knew that my great-great-grandmother in the shtetl in Russia cooked this same dish in her huge black cooking pot in her big brick oven right next to the braided challah. I knew that for centuries Jews all over the world made their own delicious versions of this dish. Because they believed in the Lord's commandment to rest on the Sabbath, they would do no cooking for an entire day. They needed a meal that could be prepared on Friday afternoon, cook for the day, and on Saturday they had a wonderful dish, enough to feed 20 hungry people. But what really made me cook chant was plain old curiosity. Imagine I had heard so many stories about this famous dish, and I had never tasted it. Throughout my childhood, my father would speak longingly for chant. His eyes would glaze over, and his voice would take on a dreamy quality as he described the tender beef baking in its own juices, the golden potatoes and the caramelized carrots. But by the time I was born, no one bothered with the dish that took 24 hours to make. So I went to the butcher, and I read him the translation from the Yiddish recipe from my grandmother. Let's see, I need five pounds of flunken. The butcher thought for a minute and said, Ah, flunken style. And he took a big side of beef into the back room. I could hear, and he came out and he said, Look, still have all ten fingers, and handed me a package of short ribs. Lots of little bone marrow eyes staring up at me from small circles of beef. I took the package home and I put it in a large cast iron pot with barley, potatoes, water, salt and pepper, onions, cranberry beans, and a whole head of garlic. I put the oven on 225 and I baked that dish for 24 hours. Well, as the chont cooked in my oven, the whole house filled with the smell of the old country. My daughters and husband would walk into the kitchen once in a while, open up the oven door and lift the lid of the pot just to see what was happening. And then I began to tell them the stories that I had heard as a child. Like the story about my great uncle Mendel, who got a bad reputation in the family, and it all started with Chont. When Mendel was a little boy, his family moved to America, and his mama was appalled to find that their oven was much too small for her big cast-iron pot. So on Friday afternoon, Mendel's mama gave him a nickel and the pot full of all the raw ingredients to make Chont and told him to carry it down the stairs, cross Kedzie Avenue where the marketplace was, and go to the Jewish baker. Mendel would give the nickel to the baker, and the baker would put the pot into his enormous oven for the day next to all the other pots of chont from all the other neighbors. When Saturday evening came, Mendel would walk back across Kedzie Avenue, pick up the chant, all cooked and tender, and carry it home to his hungry family. But one Friday, as Mendel was taking that raw chant to the bakery, 
He smelled the sweet potatoes baking on the pushcart at the corner near the marketplace at Kedzie Avenue. Oh, he just couldn't help himself. He was so hungry, he put the pot of raw chont on the ground, reached into his pocket, gave the pushcart vendor that precious nickel, and unwrapped that sweet potato and gobbled it down. Then Mendel, filled with guilt and sweet potato, had to turn around, go home, and confess to his mama. Oh, his mama was so angry, she told that story about her naughty son for years after that. And that was only the beginning of Mendel's troubles. Well, as the recipe for chont was passed down, my grandma Dinah became known as the best cook, the best cook in the family, the best creator of chont. A little pinch of this, a little pinch of that, that was her recipe. And during World War II, Dinah's nephew wrote her a letter. Dear Aunt Dinah, I'm coming home on leave and there's only one thing on my mind. Is the chont in the oven? A couple of days later, two FBI agents knocked on my grandmother's door. They had the letter in their hands. They pointed and said, What is this chont? Come in, come in, she said. Listen, I can't make it for you. It takes too long to make. But you look hungry. You want some coffee, some cinnamon dunkers? They left full and happy about an hour later with the recipe for chont in their hands. When the war was over, my father brought home a modern-day woman. My mother wore bright red lipstick that matched her painted fingernails. She sewed all her own dresses from Vogue patterns, but her mama had never taught her how to make chont. And shortly after they were married, my mother decided to invite my father's whole family over to their apartment for dinner and that she would surprise them and she would make chant all by herself. She began cooking it the morning before, but my mother was a restless young woman. And after only one hour, she took a peek and she saw that it still looked very watery. So she decided to add a little bit of flour, even though the recipe didn't call for it. Four hours later, when she looked in the pot, there was still too much water, looked like soup. So she added a half a cup of flour. All day long, she added flour. By the time the whole family arrived, the house smelled of garlic and onions, and everyone was hungry. Uncle Ben went into the kitchen and snuck a little peek, and when he opened the lid of the cast-iron pot, he let out a shriek, and everyone crowded around the oven to see the mass of gray concrete with a jagged crack down the middle. Well, my dad quickly started to scramble eggs for the hungry family while my mom stood in the kitchen crying, just like Lucille Ball. After that disaster, no one in my family cooked chont for a long time. My dad longed for his mom's chont, and one Sunday morning he called from Detroit to his mother in New York to say hi. They talked for a while, and then he said, So what are you doing today, Ma? Well, it's been a long while 
since I made chant, so I have some in the oven. I thought I'd do a little gardening. My dad said, set another place for dinner, and my grandmother laughed. But my dad hung up the phone, kissed us goodbye, went to the airport, and flew to New York. He got there just in time for dinner. By the time I decided to try cooking chant, I was older than my mother had been and younger than my grandmother. But I was an experienced cook. I had confidence. I cooked up a batch of beautiful chalt. After 24 hours, I proudly set that pot down in front of my family. My father sat at one end of the table, rubbing his hands. My mother sat at the other. My husband and children, who had already smelled the dish for a full day, were ready to try it. I watched as they took their first taste. My dad said, it's almost as good as my mother's. My mom said, it's a lot better than mine. My daughter said, it's good, mom. But my youngest daughter, Emma, said, it just needs one more thing. And she went into the kitchen and brought out flour tortillas. She took some chant, put it in the middle of a tortilla, smothered it with salsa, rolled it up, and happily gobbled down her chant burrito. And so, as with all good stories and recipes, the tradition continues with just a few twists and turns along the way. Laura Persian Rayner with a food memory here on The Appleseed. Food memories can open the floodgates of story, and you've probably got a story or two to tell yourself about favorite food memories. We invite you to do it, and we invite you to share them with us. Write them down. Send them to us by email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Up next, here's a story from Betty Ann Wiley. It's called Loving Someone You Never Met. What kind of story would come with a title like that? Here's Betty Ann Wiley. My dear, I never met my husband's grandparents. By the time I married their grandson, James Hill Wiley, or as they called him, Little Jimmy. They had all died. But I know them. I know them because I've heard about them. I've heard about them from the people who lived with them, the people who loved them. I've heard that his dignified maternal grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Wiley, were pillars of the community in Birmingham, Alabama. But that didn't stop their grandchildren from nicknaming them Poo-Poo and Boo-Boo. Poo-Poo was James Hamilton Wiley. They say he was a fine dresser who hated being told that he looked a lot like that scoundrel FDR. And he was a fine merchant whose pockets bulged with the candy and the shiny pennies he brought home to his grandchildren from his jitney jungle grocery stores. Boo-Boo was his wife, Mary Coleman Wiley, from Riverside, Alabama. 
I've heard she was a woman who never met an ailment she didn't like. But I wasn't there, so I can't say. Papa was what he called his mama's daddy, Dr. Thomas Bowen Hill, who was a dentist in Montgomery. They say Papa had a practiced touch with his patients, a disciplined touch with his children, and a Midas touch with his money. Papa was married to his second cousin, Lida Inge Hill. All their children and grandchildren called her my dear which was their contraction of Mother Dear. But Papa and Ma Dear just called each other cuz. Ma Dear's only daughter, the second of her four children, is my mother-in-law, Laura Inge Hill Wiley. We call her Lala. At age 95, Lala has outlived her parents and her husband and all three of her brothers. And she's quick to remind us that as she's gotten older, she's gotten forgetful. Sometimes she forgets the names of her neighbors, or her nurses, or her own next of kin. But she hasn't forgotten how to play bridge. She still counts trumps and takes tricks with the best of them. And she hasn't forgotten my dear. She loves to tell about her. And we love to listen. Lala says... Everybody loved my dear. Lala says my dear had more friends than anybody. Lala says the reason she had more friends than anybody was because she buttered them up. She always said it was just as easy to say something nice about somebody as it was to down them. She always said you can catch more flies with sugar than you can with vinegar. My dear belonged to every society in Montgomery, Alabama, from the Literary Club to the Altar Guild, from the DAR to the Colonial Dames, you name it, she was in it. My mother-in-law says I'm a lot like my dear. She says everybody loved my dear, and she says everybody loves me. When Lala butters me up like that, I say, mm-hmm. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. When Papa died, my dear went into mourning. She dressed in black from head to toe because she was heartbroken. She wore that black hat and veil, black dress and gloves, black shoes and stockings for the proper amount of time because she was a proper woman in a proper place. But I know she had a twinkle in her eye, even in her widow's weeds, because I've heard how she and little Jimmy always hooked their pinkies together whenever they met and said in perfect unison, we're pals, partners, and pigs. <coughs> One Christmas, he saved up his allowance to buy her a pair of salt and pepper shakers made like pink china pigs decorated with hand-painted roses. When she died, he inherited them. Every Christmas, we unpack those little pigs and thread gold cord through their curly pink tails. Then I hang them on our Christmas tree 
and I remember, my dear, a woman I never met. I feel even closer to my dear when I pass on this story she told to her daughter, who told it to her son, my husband, who in his turn told it to me. Betty Ann Wiley with a story called Madeer, Loving Someone You Never Met. It's been fun sharing memories from some of our favorite storytellers, food memories and family memories and other things. And we're going to wrap up here with a story from the great Massachusetts storyteller Jay O'Callaghan. It's a story filled with characters from Pill Hill, the neighborhood where Jay grew up, a neighborhood of doctors. That's why they called it Pill Hill. The story is called Electra. Electra. When I was a little boy, four and five and six, we lived in a house that was far from the road. So my sisters and I were excited when we moved to a real neighborhood, Pill Hill. Big houses all close together. A couple of days after moving in, my sisters and I went out to the outside back stairs and looked across the street and there were neighbor girls our age playing in the yard. We wondered if we dared cross the street. We had never crossed a street without an adult in our lives, so we started down the outside back stairs and there was a black railing. It was wobbly, it felt alive. <laughs> it was like the long neck of a black pony. And down at the bottom, there was a brick walkway, orange bricks, they looked like a smile. Then we took two steps down, stone steps, and we were standing on a sidewalk, a sidewalk where people walked. <laughs> you could almost feel thousands of invisible feet. But did we dare cross the street? I looked at my younger sister, Kathy. She was five. She had green eyes that had fun all by themselves. <laughs> then I looked at Patricia. She was nine, my older sister. She had freckles that changed places when she was mad. <laughs> I was seven, skinny, and had a cowlick, and big ears, and we did it. We started across the street. We crossed the whole street to the other side. The neighbor girls were amazed. They came running to their fence, and they stared at us. I didn't know what to say, so I said to them, you see a pear tree in your yard? I could climb it and throw pears at you. <laughs> they laughed, so we were friends. They said, come in, we'll play tag. I pushed their wooden gate, and it was old wood. It felt like dry toast, and it was on a little slope, so it went bonk, bonk. I liked the sound. We were running around playing tag, and it was fun, except for the sausage dog, Jones, nipping at my heel. Joan, don't do that. <laughs> then the door opened. It's the first time we saw Mrs. Lawrence. She was angular and had long brown hair. She said, Bones. She didn't call him Jones. Bones. Why does one bark Bones? <laughs> I thought that was interesting. <laughs> she said, children, on Wednesdays we have cookies and dickens. Cookies and dickens, great. We tumbled up the stairs, down the hall, around into the living room. It was an old-fashioned living room. Everything was old. The couch was old. All the chairs were old. Books sticking in and out. Everything was old except for a bright red rug. Brand new rug. The Lawrence girl said, don't drop the cookies on the rug. Dad loves the rug. Just got it. Well, the five of us plopped onto the couch because that's where the cookies were. Cookies and Dickens, I thought Dickens was a kind of ice cream. <laughs> Turned out it was a book. 
<laughs> and she had the book, and we were trapped. <laughs> I see dismay. I think you're going to like Dickens. He loved his characters. I'm going to read about Mr. Micawber. He was always in arrears. Kathy laughed. She thought that meant his bum. <laughs> she read for 15 minutes. It wasn't too bad, and the cookies were good. The next two Wednesdays, cookies and Dickens, and then one day it was cold. She said, children, very cold. I've lit a fire. The ashes remind me of Electra, a play I did in college. Let's do a scene. We were excited, particularly Patricia. My, my sister was dramatic. Patricia could get through half of the Lone Ranger program, and she would run out saying he's going to die this time. <laughs> she ran in and asked about the play. The play, my dear, is by Sophocles. He was a happy man who wrote sad plays. <laughs> and the play is about nothing. It's a lament. It gives one a chance to say, woe is me, doesn't it, Bones? <laughs> You're the chorus, page 42. I'm Electra. The play begins. She got very still and started to shake. And then she said, my wretched house of woe knows well how I bewail my fate. <laughs> Patricia said, she's really good. <laughs> she did a long speech and said, now children, you're the chorus. We put our five heads together. Courage, Electra, courage. <laughs> Zeus is in the heavens, Zeus is in the heavens. You're a wonderful chorus. We were a terrible chorus. <laughs> that night at home, Kathy went up to bed with a stomach ache saying, woe is me. <laughs> After that day, everyone, even dad, would say, woe is me. <laughs> One snowy Wednesday, Mrs. Lawrence said, children, come in. Let's try the chorus again. So we went in, and we got the playbook. And just then, the back doorbell rang. It was a faceted glass doorbell. You would pull it out, and it would stagger in. Ding, 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 ding. Drive the sausage dog crazy. <laughs> Jones went running down. The five of us went running down. Mrs. Lawrence followed us. We opened the door, and there he was, a big man in a black coat, and he had a blue tie, red cheeks. He had a suitcase, and he said, Madam, I'm your Electrolux representative. <laughs> she said, Electra, Electra. <laughs> Come in, Mr. Lux. <laughs> well, Mr. Lux came in, and there was a whole circus parade all the way down to the living room. He took off his hat, and he took off his coat, and then he opened the suitcase. Inside was an Electrolux vacuum cleaner, long like the sausage dog. <laughs> He attached everything, and then he was like a magician. He knelt down, and he lifted up a black cloth bag. It was the size of his shoe, and he moved it so everybody could see it. And then he turned it over. He dumped what was inside onto the red rug, soot, a mound of soot, three inches of soot. He was so brave. <laughs> but what if the vacuum didn't get it up? But he wasn't afraid. He stood up and he lifted his knee, and Mrs. Lawrence said, Nay, nay, first you should be the chorus. Show the children what a chorus could be, page 42. <laughs> you are the chorus, I'm Electra. The play begins. He was kind of smiling. She got silent and still, and then she shook and she said, All is lost. <laughs> All is misery. He wasn't smiling anymore. <laughs> She took him by the lapels. I have no loving champion. <laughs> she turned and did the rest of the speech with her back to him. 
We were used to this, he wasn't. <laughs> he was packing up fast. She finished the speech and he was slamming the door. She said, we'll go on with Dickens. We went on with Dickens until Dr. Lawrence came home and the sausage dog ran down to greet him, the Lawrence girls, and we waited in the living room and Dr. Lawrence came in with his laughing shoulders and he, he looked at the mound of soot on his red rug. He, he said, what's that? Mrs. Lawrence stood up and lifted her arm and said, it's all that's left of the chorus. <laughs> Jay O'Callaghan with Electra here on the Appleseed. A pleasure to bring you that tale and also Loving Someone You Never Met from Betty Ann Wiley and Cholt, a food memory from Laura Persian Rayner. And of course, at the top of the hour, Thank You, Ma'am, a story from Diane Furlan. This hour was written by Lacey Ivey. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to have you with us. Join us again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.